You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, great to see you this morning. Luke chapter 15 is where you need to be in your Bible, and I'd encourage you to make sure you have one out and open so you can follow along and, uh, and read along with us. So if you have just kind of stumbled in this morning, we are in the middle of a set of sermons through Luke 15. Um, a really popular chapter because it's got a really popular story, a parable right in the middle of it, or actually towards the end of it, the parable of the prodigal son, called by one uh, writer, the most famous and best short story ever written. And so uh, so anyway, this is, this is where we are, this is where we're going, and so as we take another step kind of down that road today, I, I want to keep reminding you of the context of the chapter, because if you miss the context, if you miss the listening circle, who this is being spoken to, then you miss the central message of the chapter. And so um, first two verses of Luke 15, I want to just remind you of, of who is listening to this thing. Luke 15 verse 1 says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. Two, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you have these two groups of people that this parable, and, and the, really these three parables, are being spoken into. You've got um, group number one. This is the tax collector and sinner crowd. This is the people that, that for them, freedom, ultimate freedom, ultimate satisfaction and significance and visibility and value, all these things their heart craves and longs for, um, that ultimate freedom equals, it, it, it takes them breaking the law. So, so they are the people that are running from God, trying to find freedom apart from, from God in their immorality. Like if, if you want to kind of designate the two groups as a bad group and a good group, this is the bad group. This is the nasty and naughty group. This is the group that you're pulling out of, of the bars on Saturday. This is, this is, this is the out there crowd. This is the, the marginalized and ostracized. These people live on the fringe of society. For them, running from God, how they're trying to find freedom from God, how, what they're looking to to save them is by breaking all the rules by being a bad guy. Okay, now the other crew is, is, is totally different. You've got the Pharisees and the scribes. Their way to find ultimate freedom isn't by breaking the rules, but actually by keeping the rules. Like, so if, if the first group breaks, you know, if, if, the, if the first group tries to find freedom by just open and outward rebellion, this group tries to find freedom by outward religiosity, but inward rebellion. See, see this is the, the more subtle sort of running from God. This is the sort of running from God that you're actually following the commands of God as you're avoiding God. You've got like a thin veneer of, of good works on your life, but underneath you've got this heart that is totally, just like the prodigal, just like the, the other group, you've got this heart underneath that is very rebellious. So do you see the listening circle? So as we read through this story and as we keep kind of marching through the next few weeks, it's always important for you to make sure that you come back and you're asking the question, how, how is group one, the tax collectors and sinners, the people that really feel like they're beyond the grace of God, how do those people feel as this story is being written? How are they responding? And then how are the, scri- the scribes and the Pharisees, how are they responding as this story is playing out? See, because God's got messages to both of these two crowds. To one, he's saying, listen, you are not so ugly that you're beyond the grace of God. Tax collectors and sinners, prodigals. And to the other crew, you know, crew, you're not so pretty that you're above the grace of God. You need it too. You both need it and it's both available to, to, to you. Okay, so this is the context. This is the listening circle. Okay, now here is the step I want to take this morning. My goal is to put you in the shoes of the prodigal son as he's running from his father. This is the goal this morning. 
And, and here is my hope that in doing that, a few things might happen in this room. One is that we would have a rich and a realistic view of what running from God looks like. That we would see the destructive nature of sin, the life-sucking ability that sin has. And we would see that, that you would see that in vivid colors this morning. And, and secondly, that for those of you this morning and us this morning that are in the far country, we're there. This might be kind of that Acts 9 moments where, where God in his grace meets Saul on the road to Damascus. And maybe God would meet you there today. Maybe God would meet you there. Maybe you, ha- you would have this coming to your senses moment that the prodigal does in verse 17. And then there's one, one other hope, and I think this characterizes a lot of us in the room, that there is something in you that really feels like if you could bust out of, of morality and bust out of the presence of God and bust out of the presence of the Father, get, get away from his house, if you could just get to the far country and take all of God's gifts, just, just leave God, get all of his gifts and get into the far country, I think there, there's a bit of a lot of us in here that really believe that if we could just do that, we would really have what our heart longs for. That, that that is a seductive whisper in our life. And so I just think that there's some of us in here that this morning, like there, there's just a contemplation of a wholesale change. Of a just to push the chips in and let's just try something different. And I, I just wanna, I want you to see, and I hope that you see this morning, the Holy Spirit shows this to you that there's something different that you're longing for is not life in the far country. That's not, that's not where life is found. And so, so I hope God well, as we weave through and kind of get into the shoes of, of, of this young man, that, that he starts to weave some of these things into your heart and my heart this morning. So I want to take this running from three or four different angles, and I, I want to paint some different pictures and let you see it from some different perspectives as we just try to get into these, into these shoes and consider the question, what, what do you feel as you're in this? What is, it, what is it like while you're in this? Why are you in these shoes? So, so here we go. We'll, we'll start with this first statement. That running from God always has reasons. Running always has reasons. You don't just run. You always run because there's a reason behind it, right? So running from God always has reasons. So let's start in verse 11 and we'll, we'll kind of see this play out. And he said, this is Jesus talking and he said, he's telling the parable. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. So just two quick things in verse 11 that I just want to make sure is clarified for you. Um, it says that there was a man. So there's a father in this, in this parable. And I want you to make sure that it's clear in your thinking that that, that man in this parable is God. It, it is a represent, like a representative figure of who God is and what God does. Okay, so that, that father in this parable it is, is God the father. It, it is our good dad in this story. It is how he responds to his kids. It, it's a picture of his grace and mercy that chases down lost sons and daughters. Right? So the, the, the father that you're seeing, the man in this is God. And then it says that there's two sons. And I, we kind of said this last week that the parable really has the wrong name. I don't know who named it back in the day, but the parable really should probably not be called the parable of the prodigal son because that puts all the emphasis on one son when there's an emphasis on a couple of different things. That the primary emphasis is on a God who loves both of his lost sons, not just one of them. On a God who entreats and tracks down and graciously brings into the feast both of his lost sons, not just one. So maybe a better name would be the parable of the father with the two lost sons. That it's, doesn't have the ring to it, but that gets more at the, the meat of what's happening here. Okay, so verse 12. 
So there's a man who had two sons, verse 12. And the the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless or prodigal living. Okay, so so I want you to see that, that our concern in this And this story is not on his behavior. If you've been around here long enough, you know that that's common vocabulary for us. That we are not primarily concerned with your behavior. We're primarily concerned with your belief. We're primarily concerned with the heart. So the issue here is not that the prodigal is running to the far country. The issue is why is he running? Like what, what is his heart buying into here? Like what lies is he believing in the midst of this? And I think if you just kind of want to summarize what's happening back behind the scenes, in between the words, in this prodigal's heart, here's what you see. That you see that he's really believing that he can find all that his heart aches for, longs for, visibility, value, significance, satisfaction, those deep aches of the heart, he really believes that he can find those things and experience those things and get those things apart from the Father. See, he, he's really bought into, when he, by the time he asks for his inheritance and he runs into the far country, he has bought in hook, line, and seeker. He, he has taken the bait, right? He, he is fully committed to, I can get all that like, like ultimate freedom. I can get those things, satisfaction by taking God's gifts and getting away from God and running into the far country. Now it's important that you see what's going on behind the scenes there, that this is what's happening in the, in the guy's heart, in, in the young man's heart, that he is bought in to a devastating lie. And, and so now I, I think it's interesting as you read the story, here's what I instantly, as I read those first couple of, of verses, I instantly have this thought of, who does that guy think he is asking something like that? Taking his father's inheritance and running into, like, who does that guy think he is? And I, I think this is one of the turns in this story that you need to see. That I think it's us. That, 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 that who, what we're seeing there, when that response of, who does, who, what is this guy? When that response rises to the surface, that this story should function like a mirror for you to say, look at him. There he is. Do you see your heart in that? Do you see how prone your heart is to say, God, I don't really need you for life. What I need is all of your gifts in a far country. That's what I need. And if I can get those things, then, then I'm good. Then, then I've got freedom. Then I've got visibility and value and significance and satisfaction. Maybe, maybe you could think of it this way. I like how one author puts it. That sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied in God. You see what's happening back behind the scenes here in the heart of this prodigal? Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. He, he has taken the bait. He, he is hook, line, and sinker in. I can find freedom, satisfaction, not in God, but in a thousand of his gifts. And this is us. This is you. That, that mirror needs to be in front of your face and in front of your heart so you can see that in you. And so I want to just make sure that we can help kind of sift through this line, maybe kind of um, raise the skirt of that bait up so you can see that there's a hook lodged in it. 
So I want to help you do that. Um, Blaise Pascal, he was a a French um, philosopher back a few centuries ago. And he was one of these guys that kind of adopted this language of describing men and women with a God-sized void and a God-sized slot in their heart, like deep inside their soul. It's this God-sized void that's there. And this is part of what I think it means in Ecclesiastes when it talks about um, God has put eternity into our heart. This is part of what that means, that you're created with these desires right? This is the hole inside of you. You've got these desires that you're created with. And that hole in your heart, like these desires, that ache for, for significance and satisfaction, all of that, that is intended by God. It's given to you by God, by the way. That's a good thing that you have that. It's given to you by God to lead you to God. See, that's why God gives you desires, And so you would see that that the ultimate satisfaction of all those desires can't be found in any of God's gifts, but in him. Okay, now here's what happens in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve are created with that sort of a longing deep inside of their heart for satisfaction and significance. And, And instead of looking to God for that, that hole in them turned black as they looked to God's gifts for it. Just like our prodigal. God, we don't need you. Just give us your gifts and we'll be just fine. All that we long for, we can, we, it can be satisfied in these things, not in you, God. See, see this is what's happening. What, what happened with our first parents, Adam and Eve, is replayed in the life of the prodigal. And by the way, it's replayed in us daily. Every time we sin, every time we start to jaunt down the, the road to the far country, it is evidence that our heart has really bought into the lie that we believe satisfaction can really be found, ultimate satisfaction apart from God. Okay, now I think if, if, the, if the prodigal was sitting in the audience, I think this would be the moment that he would stand up and in an awkward moment, look at me and say, Rodney, I think you're full of it. I, like in his first two months on or in the far country, I think he'd look up and say, bro, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm satisfied right now. I don't know what you're thinking, but the ache in my heart, it's being filled right now. So I don't know what like this whole thing is you're talking about, but, but I'm telling you this, I'm satisfied. I think he would say that. And here would be my response to him. Is that satisfaction that you feel is a short season of satisfaction. There's an impossible, now listen to this. It is impossible for God's gifts to satisfy you for the long haul. They're meant to be enjoyed. They're they're meant to be, um, your hobby, it's given to you by God to enjoy that. Your family given to you by God to enjoy that. But see, what happens when you start taking a hobby, you start taking family, you start taking money, you start taking a career, you start taking sex, you take any of God's gifts and you start throwing them into the void in that heart as if they're gonna satisfy that. When you start doing that with any of his gifts, when you start down that road, it's always going to be a temporary satisfaction, a short-lived season of satisfaction. And here's why. God's gifts do not have the capacity to satisfy your heart for the long haul. They don't have the size or capacity to do that. Um, men, play along um, here with me for a second. Um, guys in the room, do you remember the first time you held a girl's hand? Remember that? I remember that vividly. The first time I held a girl's hand, um, I would equate it to this. If I went over and stuck my hand into a light socket and 120 volts just went through my body, that's what that moment was of the first time I held a girl's hand. Now, you know what's ironic though? 
Do you remember the hundredth time you held a girl's hand? Not a chance. So do you see what's happened here? This is a gift from God, right? But here's the problem with any of God's gifts. They diminish in their returns. Their satisfaction level for you will always go down. So the first time you hold a hand, it's 120 volts of pure electricity. Time number two, it's 110. Time number three, it's 100. Time number like 11, it's like, did, did, the, did somebody turn the power off in that socket? Like, where'd that go? Do you see that? It's, it's cute when Laura retells the story of the first time we kind of hung out publicly. We were with a group of friends and we went to see the movie Hurricane. Remember that one, The Hurricane? Um, Denzel Washington, boxer, that whole movie, right? And so we're, we're sitting in a movie theater and uh, I didn't even know this moment even happened, right? And so she recounts the story of her elbow brushing into mine. So I thought it was kind of cute though, right? And so, but, but let me tell you this. And, and she, she uses that story to, to talk about how her pulse, you know, that whole thing, right? And I'm just saying this, our elbows brushed this morning and I can guarantee you her pulse did not change, right? <laughs> guarantee you. And so here's what I'm saying. All of God's gifts, I don't care which one you want to talk about, which one you want to throw into your heart. If you're looking at them to ultimately satisfy you, you're asking them to do something they don't have the capacity to do. Now, now get this picture of God though. He is the only thing in the universe that actually has the capacity and size to satisfy you for the rest of your life. It's not a diminishing return thing with God. It's not a 120 volts today, 110 tomorrow, 100. It's 120 today, 150 tomorrow, 200 the next, 3 billion after that. See, God is the only one with the capacity to fit into that slot in your heart and to actually satisfy it. He's the only thing that's got that size. That's it. I I, I love this quote by uh, Augustine. He was one of the early church guys that, um, you're influenced by him, but you may not even know his name and know him. But, but he made this um, comment one time. He said that, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And you know what the problem is for a lot of us in the room? Our lives are so restless, like the prodigal, we're hoping that the next thing will fix us. That if we can just get to the next, you know, the next fix, if we can just try, you know, this thing, and if we can go experience that thing, if we can go just shove this thing inside of us, we're grappling for every straw we can find to shove into that slot in our heart. And God is saying, you're always going to be restless until you realize your rest is only found in me. Your satisfaction is only found in me. So you see the reason for the running? He is bought into a lie and the gospel is coming back and saying, listen, God is good for you. He is satisfying for you. The father's house, like this is the ironic thing in the story. He is running from the one person in the story that can actually satisfy his soul. Isn't that ironic? So running always has reasons, but there's more to it than this. Number two, running is always a personal offense. Running is always a personal offense. Let let me go back to verse 12 and kind of play this out for you. Verse 12 says this, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, now there is a lot to that that our 21st century eyes don't pick up. If we were to go back into first century Middle Eastern culture, um, that culture is described oftentimes as a shame-based or honor-based culture. In other words, respect 
and honor was paramount. It, it was hugely important in their culture. I, th- their culture, you might even say it this way, their society was governed by the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and your father. Now listen to how serious they took that commandment. If you didn't do that, you could be killed as a son or daughter. You, you see this, that, that shame-based, honor-based culture, I mean, it, it shades the eyes through which this is read. Like there's people in, in the listening circle that are kind of loosening up their arms, getting ready for the rock throwing to happen here. Like this is what's happening in that listening circle, right? Okay, now if we were to kind of play this out and use 21st century language into, into that statement of verse 12, Father, give me my share here. Give me what's mine. It would be akin to saying this in 21st century language. It would be akin to you looking at your dad and saying, dad, here's what I really want. I would really prefer you to be dead and for me to have your stuff. This is what I want. Give me my demand. Give, give, me, give me the stuff that's mine and then you can disappear. I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to live in your house under your authority. I want to be my own man, do my own thing whenever I want, however I want. Give me mine and you can disappear. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you. And this is my fear for us as we read through this. I don't know if we see sin as this personal. So I think for a lot of us, sin is like me rolling a stop sign. I have got an habitual thing of rolling stop signs. It's a, it's a bad habit that I've developed. Really bad. Costly bad. And so, but, but here, here's my problem. Here's my, I don't feel bad about rolling a stop sign. You know, the only time I feel bad is when I get caught. When they write me a ticket for it. That's the only, I don't even know who to feel bad to. Who do, I mean, who, I don't know who wrote the law. I don't know who made the law. I don't even know how to feel bad for it exactly, right? And so I think this is how a lot of us feel about sin in our life. That it's an impersonal law that we're just kind of breaking. That it's kind of like rolling a stop sign. It, nobody's hurt. Nobody's really damaged. At the end of the day, who really cares, right? I think this is how a lot of us view sin. But can you see that sin in this story is not presented as you breaking an impersonal law? You just kind of rolling a stop sign. Who cares? The worst that happens, you get a ticket. It's, that is not the picture of sin in this. The picture of sin is a, is a young man walking out of his father's house. That, that is personal imagery. L- listen to this story, or listen to this quote from John MacArthur. He kind of addresses this idea. He says, Sin's greatest evil lives not in the fact that it is a transgression of the law. It's not in the fact that it, there's a law being broken. Although it is, it is most certainly that. Like sin is breaking a law, but it's more than breaking a law is what he's saying. But the real wickedness of sin stems from Kind of this nature is a personal affront to a good and gracious law giver. Now, do you see what he's saying? That the offense of sin is not you breaking the law. The offense of sin is that behind that law, there is a very personal God who gave it. He goes on. Our sin is a calculated, deliberate violation of the relationship we have with our creator. It is tantamount to wishing God were dead. Dads, can you, can you see the picture of, of sin in this? Will you, okay, just come, come into this story with me for a second. Picture your son or your daughter walking up to you and saying, I don't really care about you. Matter of fact, you're as good as dead to me, but I'd really appreciate it if you'd give me your stuff right now. 
That's your, it's not like an impersonal prodigal. This is your son saying that to you. And so you sell all that you have and you give it to him and you watch him go inside of, a, of, of the house and he's gathering all of his stuff up. All the stuff that you probably bought him, by the way. He's gathering all of his stuff up. He, he's making him a little satchel. He's got his bag together and you're standing on the front porch hoping that he'll reconsider. Begging that, that God would do something in the midst of this. So, so you're sitting on the front porch. He walks out the door with his bag and all of his inheritance that you've just given him. And, and you're hoping maybe for eye contact, maybe even acknowledgement, but he doesn't even acknowledge you. You're not even on the front porch to him. He walks straight by you down the steps. And, and now you're watching him back turn to you, walking down the road away from your house to the far country. And you're just hoping maybe he'll take a glance back. Maybe, maybe there's a shot that in this last second, he'll reconsider and actually come back to the house and be restored to the family. Maybe that'll happen, but there's not even a glance back. You are dead to him. Now, do you see the personal nature of that? Like this is a storied presentation of sin. God is inviting you in to see how he as a good father relates to the emotional effect on him when his wayward sons and daughters start running. See, Hosea uses a different imagery, but with the same sort of an impact. Um, in, in the book of Hosea, um, God tells Homer to go and marry a prostitute. Or God tells, I'm sorry, uh, Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. And so he goes, he redeems her out of prostitution, and he marries her, a prostitute. He brings her in, makes her his family, makes her his bride. And all of a sudden, he looks back up, and she has resold herself back into prostitution. And God uses this imagery to say, people of Israel, do you see what sin is? Do you see who I am in the story and who you are in the story? I am the faithful groom that runs after you, that has purchased you out of your prostitution. And you are the prostituting bride that runs away. Do you see the I, men in the room? If, if your bride is, is in prostitution, willingly selling herself prostitution, is there, is that a disconnected thing for you? Is that a, well, it's kind of like rolling a stop sign thing to you? That's not how that feels, is it? That, that is emotional. That is heart-wrenching. That is, your, like literally, your heart is just being wrung out. See, this is what God is trying to show you that sin is. That it is a personal offense. It is not rolling a stop sign. Sin's not that. Sin is, I have just found my lover in another bed. That's what sin is. Sin is, I am a good dad and my son has just walked out wishing I were dead. That's sin. And here's my worry for us. I just don't think we feel sin that way. This week, as I have lived in this and just asked God to press this down into me, and specifically this weekend, God just slammed this over me, just saying, Rodney, your view of sin is way too soft. Your view of sin is way too, um, you're not seeing the picture of this. The way you deal with sin, the way you talk about sin, the way you feel about sin, you're still thinking it's rolling the stop sign. That that is not the picture. Do you see sin this way? That it is a personal offense to a personal God? Man, may God, may God weigh that over us. 
that we wouldn't minimize and soften sin in our life as if it's really not that big of a deal, as if we can kind of coexist with it and God's okay with it, we're okay with it, so everyone, that is not the view of sin here. It's a personal offense to God. He goes on, this gets a little bit worse, by the way. And I just want to, I should have probably prefaced this, but this this was heavy for me. I mean, this is heavy stuff trying to help us sit in the shoes of this man running from God. Uh, There's more to it, though. You also see that running has a progression. The running always has a progression to it. Um, I recently sat across the table from a man who uh, recounted his story. Here's, here's the quick glimpse of his story in a couple of minutes. He was in ministry for nine years, had a side business going. The side business kind of booms. He steps out of full-time vocational ministry and into building this new business, and, and it's going well. It's Christmas of 2007, and he has this thought, which a lot of men do Christmas time of any year. How am I going to buy anything for my wife without her knowing about it? And so he, here was his response. He, he made a huge discovery in that moment. I can swipe a credit card, pull out cash. I get cash back in that credit card. Swipe it cash right there. And I can go buy her a gift. She doesn't know. We'll have a great Christmas and the world is good. So he does it. They have a great Christmas. The world is good. He pays off his credit card. No problem. Um, January rolls around and he's got this little habit for me. He swipes the card, pulls out some cash, pays it off at the end of the month. February rolls around, swipes, pulls out the cash, pays it off. We're, we're into March now. We're into April. Swipe take the cash, pay it off. And all of a sudden, this is 2008 when the economy starts to turn, has an effect on his business. And all of a sudden he looks up and he cannot pay the credit card off. And so um, his next thought is, I've been in a casino one time in my life. I walked in with $80 and walked out with $1,200. Surely this is going to work again. So he walks into the casino and uh, swipes his card, $200 out. Instantly loses $200, swipes his card again, $200 out, instantly loses $200. He walks out of the casino, not with his debt disappeared, but with his debt doubled. And so now he's got multiple problems. Now it's not just a problem of I'm swiping a credit card. Now it's a problem of I've got credit card issues. I am now, he's addicted to to gambling by the time this all rolls around. Gambling five, six days a week. And on top of all that, he's hiding it all from his wife. He has now become that, like the mailman stalker. You know that guy? That he knows that that credit card statement's gonna be there between the 8th and the 10th of the month. So it is his mission in life to make sure he intercepts that credit card statement from that mailman to his wife. So he is that guy making sure that credit card statement is pulled out and hidden from his wife. He wakes up six months later, walks into his bedroom, and his wife has all the credit card statements strewn across the bed. And she looks at him and says, what is this? And rather than humbly confessing, he pridefully denies it. Um, he tries to convince the whole family that this is um, somebody that's stolen their identity. And now he wakes up and it's 2 a.m. in the morning. He can't sleep. His heart is just beating out of his chest. And he's staring at the ceiling because in seven hours at 9 a.m., he and his wife are supposed to go down to the bank and sign a statement that all of this is true, that none of this was him, that he's... He's affirming that, that this was all somebody else's stolen identity. That he could, by the way, that on the back end, he could be thrown in jail for. 2 a.m., he's staring at the ceiling with the weight of all this crushing down. Now, I say all, that whole story, I just want to throw that out so you can see that here is the subtle thing about sin. Is sin seldom gives you the end story. See, sin didn't come to him and say, hey, in about a year, you're going to be staring up at a ceiling in despair. That's not how it happened. Sin came in one small little step. Why not swipe it? You can pay it off. 
Why not just the, the next small step? Why not just casino? We'll get this taken care of. No problem. I mean, why not just hide it at this point? In a month, you'll have this taken care of. No big deal. You see, you see the progression of this? That sin seldom works like, like this tidal wave that comes in and smashes everything, but most often like the tides, in and out, subtle. I t- take our story of the prodigal here. He finds himself in a far country, but can, okay, just see this though. You don't take one big step to the far country. You just take one small step that happens to be the last one into the far country. But see, to get to the far country, you take a million small ones before you get there. See, take verse 12, when he asks for his inheritance, you don't just ask that your father dies. You don't just wish him dead. You have a a million small steps to get you there. A million small little steps of your heart growing cold and callous toward God, distant from the father, until finally it's just a real small step to look at your dad and say, I hate you. I'd really wish you dead. Just give me your stuff. See, that is a slow move. And this is one of the points that as I thought about this, this moment this morning that I prayed for. Okay, now if you're, I want everyone to make sure you're making eye contact in this moment. Because I've got this little subtle hunch about this situation and us in this room that many of us have walked miles down this road to the far country. And listen, we don't even know it. It's been so subtle that we have rejected God for long enough that this has become the new norm for us. That we don't repent. Repentance isn't a normal thing in our life. Like literally, we can't remember the last time we have gotten before God and actually repented. Like seriously, you've locked yourself up in your room between you and God and you have cried out. You have confessed your sin and said, God, will you cover these things? Thank you for months, maybe years. Like, Can you think of the last time that's happened? See, if you can't think of the last time that's happened, guarantee you, you have been swept by the tides and you are down the road and don't know it. And may this be a moment that God gives us self-awareness to see these things, that, that the Spirit would illuminate this in us, that, that we could see where we are in this progression this morning. A couple more and we'll, we'll close it up here. Number, number four. It's got a progression, number four that running is always irrational. It's always irrational. I don't want to sit and camp on this for long, but I just want to make this simple point. If you were to get inside the self-talk of our, of our prodigal, do you know what it would sound like? I think about the self-talk as he is um, asking for that inheritance. He is thinking, if I can just get this inheritance, heck with the fight. If I can just get this inheritance, I am good in life. It, life is set up for me. Think, think about um, the moment that he is walking away from his father's house. Think about what he's thinking. This is it. The moment I've been waiting for. This is, life is happening right now. Think about the, when he got to the far country and uh, he's at his first party, just bought his first prostitute, what he's thinking. This is it. Could life get any better than this? See, this is one of the ironic things in the story is that you've got a vantage point as the reader that, that he doesn't have. See, you, you see that he's thinking Freedom from my father equals, like, it, it, it equals every, like, satisfaction. It equals all that I want in life. But we're sitting there watching this knowing that freedom from his father just means slavery of a different kind. Do you see that? But he's got no capacity to see that in this story. I'll never forget sitting across um, from a man and there's two or three of us, ple- he's in the middle of an affair, by the way, and we are pleading with him. I mean, just begging him to reconsider. 
I mean, we're, we're dragging out everything we can think of, asking the Spirit of God to illuminate these things, and, and we are throwing out the kitchen sink at this guy. Do you know what this is doing to the name of God in the midst of this? I mean, do you see what's happening there? Do you see what's happening to your wife in the middle of this? Do you see what's happening to your kids? Do you see the wake that's coming behind all this? Can you see? In, and it was just this amazing moment where I realized there, he can't see any of it. There is not a capacity in him right now to think clearly. That, that is an impossibility. This is like an Ephesians 4 moment where it says that our, like our hearts grow darkened and our thinking becomes futile. We just have a total inability to think rationally in that second when we're running. And, and just to maybe throw this out as encouragement, see if, and again, not to belabor this, but last week we talked about the first parable, the lost sheep, remember that one? That's a well-aimed metaphor at you and I, that we're sheep. One of the, the dominant characteristics about sheep is they're not smart, right? They can't see these things. They don't have the ability to do that. And, and so maybe it would be good for us just to acknowledge that, that God, we are sheep and we need your spirit to help keep us in the fence here. And God, we know that we need community, your servants, your other sons and daughters in this room to put a leash on us periodically when we're about to run off the ledge, that we need that. So if you're not in community, like people don't really know you, maybe this would be one of those mornings that you take the step towards a home group, towards good community that people will know you. So it's irrational and we'll finish with this. that running always has its results, right? So I want to just read these three or four verses to you and just us read this slowly together. And I just want you to sit in this and, and consider what these results look like in the prodigal's life here. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. At this point, he is thinking, finally, freedom. It's here. But then there's this last statement. In verse 13, and there in the far, uh, far country, he squandered his property in reckless living. His fun and his freedom lasted nine words. Nine words, and it's over. He squandered it all. And isn't it amazing how when you're in the middle of running, you're not thinking about two years down the road, two weeks down the road, two months. You're thinking about two seconds down the road. Isn't that amazing? Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, he's broke. A severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. God providentially sends a famine in the midst of that. And this is the man that, this is the man that is buying and paying for the parties. He is the man that is paying for the prostitutes. And now he cannot buy a piece of bread. Do you see the downward spiral that he's in here? I mean, I think maybe one of the ways you could see this is that that for the first time he is kind of bitten through the sugar coating that sin has that's really sweet and satisfying. And he is starting to see that underneath that sugar coating that there is a bitter taste to it, that underneath that sugar coating that there's actually poison that affects the way you feel and that affects your life. He's starting to see that all that glitters is not gold, right? Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And if you were a part of that listening circle, you would have gasped as you heard that, that he hired himself out to a Gentile. That is a no-go for a Jewish man. And more than that, he has hired himself out to this Gentile and he is actually the pig keeper, the one that is feeding the pigs, the one that is, is caring for the pigs. 
For, for, a, for a Jewish person to hear that, it would be like instant hair on the back of your neck standing up. Are you serious? This guy just went off the ledge in that. He is just beyond the point of like bringing him back. He is no longer salvageable. Just put the title on this guy. He is damaged goods at this point. This is how um, John MacArthur Actually, verse 16, let me read it first and then we'll, we'll get to that. And it says, verse 16, and he was longing to feed uh, or to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He is at a desperate and dangerous point in his life. The downward spiral has culminated to where there's no one left to give him help. Now, this is how John MacArthur kind of comments on this downward spiral. He says, this part of the story culminates in the absolute meltdown of the prodigal's life. His own lust prove uncontrollable. He finds himself enslaved in a horrific bondage from which he is powerless to free himself. It's the bondage of his own self or his own sin. And it turns out to be an infinitely worse kind of imprisonment for him than he ever imagined his father's authority to be. He is pulled progressively downward and sends death spiral until he finds himself left virtually hopeless in the most appalling imaginable circumstances. The only way he could get any lower was to be cast into the pit of hell, which as far as the Pharisees were concerned was practically unavoidable for him now. See, this is a storied presentation of Romans 6.26 that the wages of sin is death. He is feeling the death that sin has in its wake. Okay, now I want to make sure that this is clear for you and just your thinking. Because you may be a prodigal right now and you're looking around thinking, bro, I'm not in a pigsty. I'm still in the penthouse. Like this is still going well for me right now. I got all these effects that you're talking about. I I don't see them. But I want you to see this, that that the primary effects of sin are never going to be physical in your life. They're always going to be spiritual. See, this is the primary effect of sin. See, his pigsty was really a spiritual pigsty. See, it's not just that he was bankrupt, like financially, but he was bankrupt spiritually. It wasn't just that he was cut off from like food to eat, but he was cut off from a longing and a desire to know and run after and and look to God as satisfying. See, that's what he was cut off from. See, his pigsty is one of the heart, not one of the circumstances. See, his main problem is that he is cut off spiritually. I love how C.S. Lewis works at this. He says that when you are running from God, you become more and more hollow, more and more see-through, more and more like an animal. And when you are running to God, you become more and more solid. You have more and more substance to you. You, You're more and more of what God intended a human being to be. See, his pigsty is one of a spiritual thing. Now, as this scene ends, and we'll finish up here, as this scene kind of comes to a close, I, I think when you're left right there, you're left on the cliffhanger of, I mean, that is despair. Like the weight of that sin is, is depressing. And there's just like a hopeless feeling as he looks around and thinks, there, there is no one there to help me. There's no one. That's how the scene ends, but here's the beautiful part of the story, right? That that's not how the story ends. As we're gonna find out next week, that, that he's going to realize, he's going to come to his senses in verse 17. He's going to come to an awareness of where he is and where he should be. And he's going to realize that there's not only food to spare in his father's home, but listen to this, there's also grace to spare in his father's home. He, he's going to realize that he has spent the, the, these last months, maybe even years of his life, recklessly 
spending, recklessly throwing away all the gifts of God. And we're gonna see in this next scene in the story that God comes and pursues him and God recklessly gives and lavishes his grace onto this prodigal. So that's what we're about to see. That the point of this story is, you see how far he is? God's grace reaches further. Do you see how everyone thinks he's across the line? God's grace reaches across the line. That regardless of how far you feel like you have run from God, like in this moment or in your life, in your past, that God's grace is bigger and and better than the nastiness of your running. That all the shame you feel for running, all has been put on Jesus. All the humiliation you might feel in prodigal living, all has been put on Jesus. That on the cross, God has absorbed all of your running, all of your prodigal living, all of your reckless life, all of your wasted days, God has taken all those on himself and absorbed him. So uh, my buddy, he's, he's laying up at two o'clock at night and looking at the ceiling thinking, what am I going to do? And his wife says, are you up? And he says, yeah, I'm up. And in that moment, the grace of God reached into a really nasty situation and redeemed it. He confessed and repented of his sin. He was broken for it. Two years later, he's an elder at his church. I pray that for some prodigals in the room. Amen? Let's pray. If if you were in that listening circle and you were a tax collector or a sinner, if you were in that group, you would have been listening to, to this story up to this point. And you would have thought this that the father has completely disowned this prodigal. He has done away with this prodigal. There is no grace left for him. If you're the prodigal, you, if, you, if you're that in that crowd, that tax collector and sinner crowd, if you're running from God in immorality, if you're in that group, that, that group in that listening circle was thinking, man, this guy has really blown it. He is beyond the grace of God. So can you just hear God the father say to you today, you're not beyond the grace of God. Can you just hear that over your life? You're not beyond the grace of God. As bad as your sin is, God's grace is bigger. Can you just hear that today? If you have never trusted and treasured Jesus, never stepped across a line of faith, there's never been a decisive moment where you have declared your allegiance to God. There's never been a death to life moment a lost but found moment. If that's never happened, there's never been a trusting and treasuring, then we would invite you to that today. I think it would be inappropriate with with what has been communicated in this parable thus far to, to not throw that out. This parable communicates an invitation that regardless of how far you are out there, God the good shepherd comes after and he finds you and there is grace to spare for you. So I'd encourage you, if that's you, if you'd like to to walk through what it means to to give your life to Jesus, what it means to um, step across the line of faith, to trust and treasure Jesus, what it means for God to save you, make you alive to him. I'd encourage you to check that on your your, uh, guest card there. Let us know. We'll follow up with you this week. We'd love to get coffee with you and have that conversation to walk beside you in that. For those of you who have in the room, I just wonder where, like where it is that you have taken steps into the far country. 
Has it been, has, has the tide of that sin just been sweeping you in that direction without you even knowing it? And listen, if, if you are the person in here that all you can do is think about, man, I wish that my husband would have heard that. I wish my daughter, my son would have. If that's you, then that is elder brother running this morning. See, you're, you're the prodigal. It's just hard for you to see that. So may God's grace blow open your vision of your own heart today. And he'd do that for you and with you and for, and for us. So God, we invite you in. God, we, we ask you to, to give us eyes that can see. God, would you do that? Give us ears that can hear. God, help us see our sin and the seriousness of it. And help us see the sheer grace of you sending Jesus in your that covers it. That on the cross, our worst sin has been dealt with. On the cross, our worst sin has been paid. On the cross, all the shame that we deserve as the younger brother was stacked onto Jesus. He despised the shame. All the humiliation of our sin that would be right for you to stack onto us, you stacked onto Jesus. He humbled himself, humiliated himself as he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So God, I pray for those who have shame and humiliation today as they think about their life and they think about their prodigal days or prodigal seasons. God, that they would live under the cross where shame and humiliation has all been dealt with. That we can live freely under grace. So God, will you help us in that? God, will you woo us by your grace back towards your house? Yes, Father. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.